Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. This is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Hello. Hello. I'm very excited about this week's episode. Good. Because I'm excited about every episode. You're so diligent, even yeah. after all this time. Yeah. Um, and I'm excited about the topic which we're going to be talking about, yeah. but I'm, I'm particularly excited because we have... A, a legend joining us uh, for the cheerful as people. well as you, so, yeah. Another an, an, an additional legend yeah. uh, joining us for this this week's uh, cheerful people slot, and it is the the director Ken Loach, yes, who has a new film. It is terrific. It's powerful. It's important. It's called Sorry We Missed You. But you know what he he famously does is he takes people who aren't particularly actors, but he sees something in them, and he thinks May, maybe you could be the lead in my new film maybe there's something in you that's going to resonate with the, the cinema going public uh, so, so you're going to get your big break i'm hoping so i'm hoping i get Do you want talent. me to have a word with him for you yes yes if you if you wouldn't mind what, 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 who would you see yourself playing what's your sort of who is that um Labour dj MP? down on his luck who suddenly well, has a two- transformation becomes a turns out to rule the world in a fantastic sort of benign dictatorship why not i mean that that yeah. sounds like i'm not good... suggesting you're down on your it life sounds by like, the way well <laughs> but I mean, you need a bit of dramatic license to sort yeah of, you know yeah from sort of you know i was gonna say zero to hero but that's gonna make two worse <laughs> <laughs> you know that's the dramatic license part of it i'm trying to dig myself out here yeah yeah i can say what, what about you who who would you uh, mean? a failing polit failed politician no um <laughs> Uh, no, I don't know. But I'm, I'm excited. I love Ken Loach's films. Yeah. I thought we could start by talking about film this week. So if, yes. if you had to, and I know, you know, you don't like these things to be set in stone and define you. But set if you, in stone, I don't think that's... <laughs> sorry, sorry to bring blow. up painful oh. memories. Oh. It's one of your trigger <laughs> yeah, words, isn't exactly. it? <laughs> if, uh, if, if you were to pick your, your three films, your Desert Island films, top films. three. Twelve Angry Men. Hmm. You love a legal drama. It was my dad's favourite film. Anyway, it's a sort of one man turning turning around a sort of di- very difficult. What else comes to mind? Star Wars. Interesting. I, I loved Star Wars. Close Encounters we? of the Third Kind, maybe actually more than Star Wars. Because oh, we've never we've never talked about Star Wars. I didn't, were you a Star Wars fan as a kid? Well, I remember going to see Star Wars and Close Encounters of the Third Kind. But Close Encounters was the the one that left more of an impression. Uh, I think either of them. Do, 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 yeah. Ed, I'm really enjoying your cho- choices. I feel really? this is this is revealing. Um, the Third Man, right. Orson Welles. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This has got fantastic sort of cinematography. But also, do you know a film called The Lady Vanishes? Only by name. It's, like, it's, about, this, uh, it's about this sort of woman on a train. It's a sort of mystery. Again, it was one of my dad's favourite films, but it's quite a fun film. And, and also you love being on a train. Indeed. What yeah. are your three favourites then? Uh, 
I, I always go and see It's a Wonderful Life at the Pictures every Christmas. Right. So I think I put that in yeah. there. I, I like uh, the heartwarming story of a community rallying around to give a give a broken man some money. Yeah. I mean, I'd quite like to see that oh, play oh, out I, in my life. I've thought of another one, by the way. Yeah. Oh, here we go. This is the trouble sorry. when you try and nail it down. Yeah, to sorry, three. actually. I, 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 okay, so what do you want to knock out of your three then? Uh, I think I might knock out, well, I don't really know, but I, all the President's Men, which is the story of Woodward and Bernstein. Yeah. With um, uh, Dustin Hoffman and Robert Redford. But you've, you've got to bump one of the others then. Yeah, 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 definitely. Okay, so which one? So I think that then it would be all the President's Men, 12 Angry Men. Oh, how many men? Uh, uh, and the lady <laughs> vanishes. Yeah, there we go. You've just about passed the Betchel test. Uh, and, the, and the lady vanishes. Okay, okay. Um, I would go for... I, I really like this director, Roy Anderson, the Swedish director. And he's, he's made three films, which are, are trilogies, and they're all kind of interchangeable in a way. But I'll go for the one with the best title, which is uh, A Pigeon Sitting on a Branch Reflecting on Existence. And what they are is they're all vignettes that are done on a locked-off camera. He constructs these very sort of real but like weirdly coloured sets and, and they're full of sketches about human behaviour and human life and they're really moving and really funny. And then Billy Liar wow. with Tom Courtney and Julie Christie, which is about a hapless young man from the Manchester area with sort of dreams, with dreams of getting out and maybe breaking into the lower echelons of show business. Excellent choices. Actually, you know, the other thing, too, I've got two more. Well, I don't know what I'm going to do about So my... then you're going to have to bump another yeah. two out. Well, you know, Educating Rita. Oh, great. Yeah, um, yeah. I just think that, you know, my, my all-time favourite lines is Julie Walt, you know, discuss the staging difficulties of Ibsen's Pig and put it on the radio. Uh, and E.T., I'm a bit of a... I really liked E.T. You related to him? Am I related to E.T.? No, you, you, you related to him as a character? <laughs> I'm not related to E.T. I mean, after 100-something episodes, you said lots of things to me which are not that flattering, but we're asking whether I'm related to E.T. I said, did, did you relate to him as a character? <laughs> this is an exclusive reason to be cheerful. I'm not related to E.T. Have you done a DNA test? Do we know that for sure? 23 and me, no. Uh... Um, this is this has been very revealing. I think. Yeah, we should do some more of it's these. Re- it's as, very as, revealing as a, that I'm not related to ET. Yeah, <laughs> I think that will surprise a lot of people. Indeed. Well, good. I, I enjoyed that. I felt uh, it, yeah, it, it, it re- revealed character. Um, we, we. I don't feel I was very engaged on your choices because I didn't. I didn't really know them. Well I do enough. find that's often the case. Though. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me more about your choices. I've, I've, I've done them. I've, I've oh, done them. Shit, let's sorry. let's move on. I'm sorry. You were too busy, like thinking of which ones to knock well, out. Well, I think your you, see, you, you sort of prompted me to, to, you know, think. It's you know. my fault you weren't really listening to me. Yeah, you basically said if I'd been more interested or engaging, you would have paid more attention. Thought of you. Yeah. Okay, good for the old self-esteem. Yep. Yeah. Uh, All right then. <laughs> definitely, I think you could definitely. Maybe Ken Loach could definitely have you in a film. You're not even making eye contact. You're looking at your Twitter on your iPad as you <laughs> say it. Um, so. Should we talk about what we're talking about this week? Yes. This week we're talking about the idea of a frequent flyer tax. Mm-hmm. Addressing carbon emissions from flying is a key part of tackling the climate emergency. Aviation is responsible for 7% of UK carbon emissions, but that is predicted to rise to 25% one quarter by 2050. The Committee on Climate, climate Change has said that passenger m- numbers must grow by no more than 25% between now and 2050 to hit the net zero target. But we are nowhere near on track for that, and it's hard to see how it's consistent with government policy, such as the planned expansion of Heathrow. 
And some people are arguing that the solution is a frequent flyer tax, which will give people one tax-free flight a year and then tax them progressively higher for each additional flight. 70% of flights in Britain are taken by just 15% of the population, and half of people don't fly at all each year. So this would seek to alter the behaviour of that small proportion of regular flyers. We are going to be speaking to Professor Alice Larkin about the problem of flying and why it's such a difficult issue to address. And then Leo Murray, who campaigns for a frequent flyer tax. Great. And then, as we said, Ken Loach here to talk about his film. Sorry we missed you. And he's going to be bringing along uh, his close collaborator who has worked with him on so many of those classic films over the years, uh, screenwriter Paul Laverty. So what's your reason to be cheerful? Very good peripheral vision. Been to the opticians this morning, uh, and and amongst other things, I did a test where it's like a computer game. You have to press a button every time something flashes in your peripheral vi- vision. It prints out your results afterwards. Perfect head, hurtling towards fifty, and my peripheral vision is perfect. And I was going to say, if you never never need me to do a kind of a you know bodyguard thing, wow, you know, I, I, if I could see you in sort of shades, yeah, and, I could, you know, a sort of sharp yeah. suit. Yeah, so if you want to go out in public, I mean, I'm, I'm scanning the horizon at all times for any foul play. You're hired. I mean, maybe that could be potentially a lead into a Ken Loach film. Yes, we should pitch it to him as an idea. Yeah, maybe. Congratulations on your peripheral vision. Thank you very I much. I think it's extremely important. Thanks. I've always thought you had, you know, great sort of horizon scanning you're just buttering abilities. me up buttering me up now yeah, after that, that business before rescue myself what's uh, uh, what's your reason to be cheerful so my reason to be uh, cheerful is cinematic actually it's well cinema related um yesterday i met a fantastic lady called uh, francesca santoro loire um she is a aficionado i guess of british politics she's american she lives in california one of her claims to fame is that she was in charlie chaplin's film the great dictator filmed 81 years ago you are kidding me she played a five-year-old niece of one of the main characters and there's some absolutely charming pictures i've got of her and she also told me that there's a there's a scene apparently it's quite infamous or famous this scene where she's throwing a ball uh, and then she gets taken I guess, prisoner by the bad guys. But this was filmed before the outbreak of the Second World War. But once the Second World War happened, this scene was cut. I don't quite know why it was cut. But anyway, there's, there's stills from the scene, and, and uh, she, was, she was left in, in, one, in one scene. That's incredible, because yeah. that, that is one of the great moments in cinema history, that film, isn't it? Did she, does she have any memories of she Charlie She does. Chaplin? She remembers it well. Yeah, 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 definitely. And, uh, I mean, the other thing that you, will be of interest uh, to you is that um, she, she, she sent me an email afterwards to say uh, the entire scene was shot in slow motion in reverse, a bit of a revolution in cinematography. So she said she was never in danger from the careening car. Uh-huh, so it's something to do right. with a car picking her up. Right, right, um, right. So it was also a sort of cinematic innovation. That's incredible. Isn't that an amazing story? What a conversation to have had. Yeah, exactly. Almost as good as your peripheral vision story. You're listening to Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. We're going to speak now to Professor Alice Larkin, uh, who works in climate science and energy policy at the University of Manchester. Alice, thank you for talking to us. Um, First off, I wondered if you could maybe just give us a kind of overall picture of how aviation contributes to the, the climate crisis, maybe how big a slice of the pie it is. In terms of kind of global emissions, it's about 2% of global CO2 emissions. 
But you have to bear in mind that most people in the world don't fly. And it is impacted by, you know, the nature of flying and, and who actually flies. So if you look at a country like the UK, albeit we're an island, so flying is fairly popular, given we're an island nation, it's more like 10% of our CO2 emissions. But with aviation, CO2 emissions are not the only part of the climate impact. We all know our aircraft fly up in the atmosphere and tend to cruise around the lower troposphere um, and almost into the, the stratosphere and the lower stratosphere. And up there, there is a lot more sensitivity to, to some of the emissions that aircraft might release. So there are other impacts as a result of that due to some of the chemical interactions with uh, things like uh, the production of methane that nitrous oxide produces and, and ozone as well. And actually, there's a, there's a bit of a warming effect, there's a bit of a cooling effect, but on balance with the contrails, which are like the, the, the condensation trails you see outside the back of the aircraft as well, created by soot and water vapour. All in all, there's an additional warming impact on top of what you get from the CO2. So when you're looking at aviation compared with other sectors, there are these additional contributions to climate change that we also have to take into account. In terms of the, uh, for example, the, the Paris Agreement goals, the, uh, the goals set out in that, how far do we need to reduce aviation emissions to, to stick to what was laid out? Basically, what's laid out in Paris is that all sectors need to completely decarbonise. There's debate around how we're going to achieve that across all sectors. And is there any scope for things like negative emission technologies, which uh, I don't know if you've talked much about before, um, but things that can actually remove CO2 from the atmosphere. The, the challenge is that even you know, if we manage to, to be incredibly optimistic and, and roll out these negative emission technologies as quickly as possible, we still have a hell of a lot to do in terms of decarbonising the rest of our sectors that, that produce CO2 emissions. So aviation, just like all of the other sectors that produce CO2, needs to rapidly and urgently cut its emissions. But we often think about aviation and some other sectors like agriculture, shipping, steel is another one, as, as sectors where it's particularly challenging to reduce emissions. As such, we expect other sectors will have to do more to cut their emissions because it's going to be a bit harder for, for some of these sectors. The trouble with that approach is that it sort of takes attention away from actually trying to decarbonise sectors like aviation, because despite the fact that it's difficult, we still need to do everything we possibly can um, under the, the scope of the Paris Agreements. Are there other ways we could do it other than uh, reducing uh, demand, reducing the amounts of flights that are taken? Is, is that technology on the horizon, which, for example, suggests that it's clean aircraft are going to be viable in the sort of near to midterm future? This is one of the big challenges with aviation and different to many other sectors. So the technologies that, that might come available um, are going to take a long time to filter through the entire fleet. So the infrastructure, the fact that aircraft last a long time, that's one of the big barriers to change within the sector. So it's not like car transport where we change our cars, you know, fairly regularly. So if a new technology comes along, the impact across the whole of the car fleet can be relatively rapid. If you look at aviation, you know, the, the, the aircraft tend to last for about 30 years. So there's a long lead time in terms of the technology change. And that technology change tends to be really incremental in aviation. So if you think back 20 years and imagine what aircraft looked like then, they, they look pretty much the same as they look now. And part of the reason for that is that there were already been some fantastic advances in, in aviation, in aerospace, 
that mean that the engines are incredibly efficient, that the airframe designs are incredibly efficient. And that's not so surprising because one of the big issues for, for aircraft is getting them off the ground, of course, which takes an awful lot of energy and power. And so that's a big part of the cost for any airline um, in terms of, you know, their, their operating costs. So there's always been a driver to minimise fuel consumption, which means that that happened a long time ago. And so, yeah, now the change is really rather in- incremental. And is there anything on the horizon with regards to the way that aircraft are fueled, rather than just the efficiency of how they're using that fuel? Is there anything around um, biofuel or electricity? Yeah, so those are two interesting aspects. Um, On the biofuel side, uh, there's biofuel, there's also sort of other synthetic fuels perhaps produced from waste. And in terms of not having to change the airframe design, that's quite an attractive option. So, you know, being able to actually change, swap out the fuel for, for a very low carbon fuel. But of course, there are lots of challenges around biofuel, particularly around its its sustainability. So it's not a kind of um, a given that a biofuel alternative is going to be significantly better. You have to look at that whole supply chain. And there are obviously other challenges around the sustainability of biofuel, which is a debate that links to the food and fuel debate, deforestation and so on and so forth. So, you know, we have to be very careful when we're looking at the biofuel opportunities that you're mindful of the this wider sustainability agenda. That's quite complicated and an interesting, but but I don't think it's, it's like the obvious uh, easy solution, if you like. If you're looking at electricity, I think there is some interesting um, work there to be done in exploring what the opportunities are. But my my understanding at the moment, and this is not an area that I'm currently looking at in terms of research, but is that, you know, the, the opportunities are there for the lighter aircraft, for, for short haul travel. In terms of long haul, I think we're talking we're talking decades, really, in terms of actually getting this technology to work. And, and so the challenge for the Paris Agreement, again, is the timeframes are really short. You know, we need to be reducing emissions in the very short to medium term. As such, you need things that are going to offer you decarbonisation now. And so the electricity stuff is really interesting, really exciting, should be being researched, of course, but isn't going to provide us with those short term fixes. So it seems like reducing flights is the only game in town really uh you still have government policy uh which which involves airport expansion for example heathrow those two things just can't be compatible with each other right i don't think they are compatible um i don't think it's something that you would take off the table forever um but when we're talking about the paris agreement that's quite a short time frame over which we have to make some significant change which might mean that you have to do some things differently in this sort of framing of a, of a climate emergency, which is where we're at now, given we, we've moved so slowly over the last couple of decades, where you take some decisions that seem a bit counterintuitive to the progressive society, where you might say, well, you know, a moratorium on airport expansion is actually a good thing to have for now. Um, when the technologies are there, when if it's electric aircraft, if we've solved the fuel issue, whatever it might be, that has to be there for us to then be able to use something in a much more decarbonised way. And as long as it's not there, then we have to make some quite difficult and, and controversial, I think, decisions around airport expansion. Can I ask you about sort of the choice you have made personally to stop flying, how that came about um, and and whether you think actually people in your position, climate academics, whether, whether you feel it's a, a duty almost to do that, to set an example? 
So I decided to stop flying partly because my postdoc research was focused on looking at the conflict essentially in the UK in particular between its kind of climate change policies and its aviation expansion policies. I've never been somebody who who flew a lot anyway, but, you know, I'd go along to meetings and talking about this and people would be saying, yes, but how did you get here? And, you know, what what was your mode of travel and and how contradictory? And and they would say that and expect me to sort of say, oh, well, yeah, I flew and... And and that would make them feel better, particularly if you were talking at a sort of aviation meeting or something. And, and it, you know, people are really, they were very interested in what I was actually doing. And, and I thought this is quite interesting in the sense that, you know, if you went into a GP surgery and they were sitting there smoking and they were telling you to, you know, that really you've got to tackle that, that habit, um, you really probably wouldn't believe them. Um, and I just felt that it challenged my own credibility as a researcher to be saying that we really need to look at the demand side of this as well as the technology. So I think that I have to do that because I, I know too much about how, how big a problem this is. How often does it get people's backs up when you tell them you've you've stopped flying? You know, in a way, you're holding a mirror up to them. I wouldn't say it gets people's backs up, but it is something that I have personally sometimes avoided saying to people um, because I did find myself in a position where people wanted to confess their flights to me, which I found really bizarre. <laughs> Quite early days when I was working as a researcher, postdoc researcher in the Tyndall Centre, and you know, taking this decision, and it was just a personal decision, and it wasn't even that I sort of raised a flag and said, "Look, from today, I'm not going to fly again." But then, you know, when friends and family would hear about it, they they were like, oh, Alice, you know, I've got to tell you where I've just been. And I'd be like, I really I don't really want to know. <laughs> it isn't easy um, to, you know, to have friends and family who are doing lots of flying and to, to stand there and, and not really say anything. But on the other hand, it's like it isn't for me to to make the decisions for them. But me going around preaching at them about their behavior is not something that, you know, is going to necessarily get anywhere, I didn't think. As a final thing, we have a thing on the podcast called the Jeffocracy, which is a utopia with me installed as uh, some kind of benign ruler. Uh, if I was to appoint you Minister for the Environment, Minister for Aviation, I mean, you take take your pick. But um, what it, what is the first thing you would do on day one? Well, I would have a moratorium on airport expansion. So no more airport expansion in the UK. And I would get a working group fixed on looking at the uh, some sort of frequent flyer levy or or tackling frequent flying. Um, to try to come up with some innovative policies and at the same time focused on, you know, making rail travel uh, easier in the UK and into Europe. So really making those connections happen so that it becomes attractive and people start using it more. Professor Alice Larkin, thanks so much for talking to us. Thank you very much. So we're joined now by Leo Murray, who is founder of A Free Ride, the campaign for a UK frequent flyer tax. And he's also director of innovation at Possible, which is a successor to the organisation at the 1010 Climate Action Campaign. Leo, thanks for joining us. I'd love to be here. Thanks. So we've heard from Alice about the contribution of aviation to the climate crisis and the need to uh, reduce, at least reduce the growth of flying why do you think existing aviation policy, particularly taxation, is, is failing to deal with the problem? There are a number of things going on here. The first is that this is a problem of buck passing. It's something that no one wants to take responsibility for. So the hot potato just gets passed around. Superficially, it makes sense to say this is international aviation is a global issue and you should have a global solution to it. And that's what the UN decided way back in 1997. They gave uh, the UN body that's responsible for regulating 
airline's responsibility for coming up with a solution. That makes sense on the surface of it, on paper. Over 20 years later, we've really had nothing from that body. They're called ICAO. They've not been doing their job. So they haven't come up with a solution for air travel that is consistent with the headline goals of the UN, you know, in the Paris Agreement. So basically what they've come up with is a giant offsetting scheme. Nobody thinks it's going to work. Even if it works as designed, its headline goal isn't consistent with the Paris Agreement. So it's not an answer. No, it's not an answer. It's not going to work. So everyone was passing the hot potato. You decided to grab the hot potato. Uh, and a few years ago, you set up a free ride campaign yeah. for a frequent flyer tax. Tell us about your proposal and how it would work. It's very simple. Um, it is get rid of air passenger duty which is um, the only tax that anybody pays on air travel today, uh, replace it with a frequent flyer levy. Everybody gets one tax-free flight each year, and then tax kicks in at a low level for your second flight, and then you pay a bit more for your third flight, and so on. So the more you fly, the more you pay, whereas at the moment you pay more for long haul than short haul, more for business than first, but that's basically it. Yes, exactly. That's the only differentiation at the moment. Now, you know, the inspiration for this came from, you know, I've been working on this issue for a long, long time. It is a very difficult problem to solve. Many times I had head-to-heads with aviation industry lobbyists who would would point the finger at us and say, why do you hate ordinary people going on holiday? Why do you want to stop people taking their hard-earned annual holiday in the sun? And back in 2014, I was going through Department for Transport survey data And I I realised that actually over half of the people in the UK do not take a flight in a given year. But I already knew at that point that um, British people are responsible for more international flights than almost anybody else. So so quite literally, uh, UK residents fly internationally more than the people of any other nation. But then half of us don't fly at all in a given year. So I thought, well, the half who are flying must be flying an awful lot. So I started digging down into the survey data, and what I found was that 15% of the UK population takes 70% of all the flights. So going back to that accusation from the airline, you know, from aviation industry lobbyists trying to fight off regulation, um, you know, the problem is not annual family holidays. The problem is a small group of people at the top end of the income spectrum, you know, this is what the data shows, um, who are taking multiple leisure flights each year. And what, one other way of thinking about this, as I understand it, is 85, I don't want to blind people with uh, statistics, but 85% of people in the UK take two or less flights a year. Yeah. Exactly. So half I say zero, the other 35% take one or two flights. That's normal travel behaviour for the British public. And actually, if that was the level of air travel that everybody in Britain was doing, this would be very manageable with respect to our climate change targets and regular people can still take holidays. And this this sort of 15% jet set, are they so affluent that you'd have to tax at quite a high level for it to be a deterrent to them? Yeah, it's a really, that's a really good point. And actually, this point applies more widely, right? So one of the reasons why aviation policy is failing on climate at the moment is that um, there's no tax on kerosene. So it's completely untaxed by international treaty. And as a result, air travel is sort of artificially cheap. Now, it's actually very difficult to control demand for aviation using a fiscal mechanism. So if, for instance, you set about, you wanted to just apply carbon tax and you started to tax kerosene, which is what we've never done. Now, actually, you would have to tax it at such a high rate 
in order to have the effect on demand that is necessary to stay within safe limits, that you would very quickly find that you've made air travel inaccessible to everyone in the bottom half of the income spectrum. Basically, if you just turn up the dial on the price, you have to turn it up so high that you price poor people out of the skies. So the flip side to this, you know, with a frequent fly levy, what happens is that, um, yes, you have to turn the dial up very high, but you actually are only doing it on a on this very, very small elite group of passengers. Let's talk about the rates, uh, Leah, because I think this will give people more of a sort of sense, mm. a sense of it. So, so the Committee on Climate Change said we need to limit aviation growth to 60% by 2050 compared to 2005 levels. So in your report from 2015, so this is a required percentage on current one ticket prices for single one-way journeys. So first flight, 0%, second flight, 9%, third flight, 24%, fourth flight, 46%, fifth flight, 74%, sixth flight, 109%, seventh flight, 149%, eighth flight, 193%. Ninth flight, two hundred and forty percent. I don't know. We the tenth flight isn't in there, but so that gives people a sense of it. So it kind of goes up, kind of gradually, and then rather steeply. Your modelling suggests that would have the impact on demand that is required. Correct? Exactly right. So you know that was the goal of the modelling was to say, okay, so this seems like it would be a fairer way to do it than a carbon tax or just increasing air passenger duty or any of these other policy options that have been talked about, but would it actually work? You know, that was the question that we set out to solve. The upshot was, yes, you absolutely can. So it does work to do that. And um, what you get, in fact, is a slight increase in the number of people who are flying in the bottom income quintile. So that's the, the poorest fifth of the population wind up flying slightly more than they would. you cut their tax rates. Exactly. But but for people at the top of the income spectrum, there is a dramatic drop. So they're flying a great deal less than they would have been without a frequent fly levy. So, so to be clear about this, Leo, if you're flying once or twice, you're paying either less if it's once or what, about the same if it's two flights? Yeah, exactly. About the same. So basically, everybody in that 85% of the population that's flying zero one or two times, winds up better off under a frequent flyer levy. The only people who are paying out more than they do today are people who are flying three or more times. But that is interesting in because it's intuitively maybe surprising that the people who've got lots of money who are at the top, they are, are they do respond to price. In this indicative schedule that we did in 2015, you know, your ninth flight, is, you're paying £420 in tax. Now, that might not deter you if if you're talking about, you know, a holiday you've been saving for for three years and, you know, it's a, it's a long haul trip of a lifetime. But where the source of all, the, all this frequent flying is things like second homes abroad. And so what will happen is that people will stop making those kinds of lifestyle choices that, that rely on access to constant, very, very cheap air travel. And they're responsible for such a large share of the total that you wind up with a big cut. Can, can I ask this? This is just leisure flights. Well, this is a very good question, Jeff. So, you know, the, the bit of this that is unresolved is how you treat business flights. So this is a proposal to solve the problem of very, very frequent leisure travel. And it's important for listeners to understand, you know, most people tend to assume that, you know, when you see constant jets passing overhead, you think they're kind of full of important business people on their way to important meetings. Now, Business travel by UK residents has been in decline since 2000. 
it's now the case that fewer than one in 10 international flights by UK residents are flights for business. And the truth is the drivers to business travel are really quite different from the drivers for leisure travel. But of course, what you can't do, you know, you can't tax individuals for flights they had to take for work and you can't tax businesses for individuals' holidays. So you need a separate regime that taxes businesses separately, treats them as separate entities, and they get their own allowance. And it can't be that different from what you're doing with individuals because otherwise you have gaming, you know, and you'll have wealthy husband and wife teams starting companies, you know, just so that they can write off their trips to their second home in Tuscany as business travel, etc. Is it practical to have two different regimes for precisely the reasons of avoidance that you t- and, and sort of gaming that you talk about? It should be okay. If you talk about UK businesses and you want to apply a frequent flyer levy type structure to them, then I would favour them getting an allowance based on a number of employees uh, rather than turnover or profit or some other metric. You know, so... Let's say you've got 10 employees, you know, so you get a certain number of free flights each oh, year and then, and then, you know, and then you're taxed for the next set of uh, flights, et cetera, right? Um, now, that is pretty much okay for UK-based companies because HMRC already knows how many employees that they have. But like I say, you just got to remember, business travel is actually just really quite a small share of the total anyway. So the Green Alliance, the, the, the environmental organisation, did a citizen's jury in Cardiff recently, and they did try out the frequent flyer levy. Now, obviously, you weren't there or anything, and nor was I, but they did a report which, which isn't sort of, isn't, doesn't read, like, make fantastic reading. Uh, it says the policy was randomly rejected due to the perception that it would be unfair, particularly those with family abroad, and required changes that people were not willing to make. I mean, it does go on to say that this echoes the results of research which found that people are uncomfortable with the idea that we should fly less but it was the only policy tested that involved significant personal changes and participants thought their own actions to reduce flying would be pointless in the face of government plans to expand Heathrow Airport so there was a context to this yeah there's some interesting context to it I mean I think you know I'd like to say we weren't there so I, sure. I, I can't know how this was communicated sure. one thing that we've done that possible is we we, we, we commissioned some polling which compared the popularity of a frequent flyer levy with other policy options that you could also use to meet the same goal. And people prefer a frequent flyer levy to the other options. So they, they much prefer a frequent flyer levy to, for instance, just massively increasing air passenger duty. But I think fundamentally, air travel is an area where there is no painless solution to staying within safe climate limits. There's that bit in that report from the focus group which says people felt like their own actions would be futile in the face of government decisions like Heathrow expansion. You know, that's a legitimate take, I think. Um, You know, people don't want to be penalised when clearly the government is doing other things that are also going to make this target impossible to meet. So the first thing is you've got to have consistent policy across government, you know, before people will accept something like this. But the second thing is people need to understand that um, this is a problem that can only be solved by somebody somewhere who wants to take a flight not taking it. So the question then becomes, well, whose flights are we going to stop? And my view is it shouldn't be annual family holidays. So this is a better, fairer solution to staying within safe climate limits than any of the other things that have been proposed today. The only way 
to stay within safe climate limits now is for is to constrain demand growth um and this i think is the best way to do it leo i, I think it's a very exciting idea but aren't, aren't you afraid that there's going to be a knock on your door in the middle of the night and it's going to be stelios from easyjet and michael o'leary from ryanair <laughs> ready to bundle you into the back of a van well i, I mean look uh, yes uh, up to a point i am i am concerned about that i think that this is this is one of those areas where reality bites this is this is the thing is that actually doing what needs to be done on climate change it's not possible to do it without some difficult choices being made we've got a thing on the podcast called the jeffocracy uh leo mm, um yeah and basically i think if you were sort of minister for aviation or minister for sort of curbing aviation growth or something uh i mean the one caveat i suspect i'll say this for jeff is that you'd have to kind of turn a blind eye to all his flights uh because you know sort of you know there'd definitely be you know you'd, it would be sort of do as i say not as i do wouldn't it jeff yeah yeah but i'd be very interested in having a coconut powered electric right. private jet what would you call it you know jeff force one i right, don't know okay. yeah. <laughs> I think that would be the first plane ever called Jeff Force One. I think that would be a unique, <laughs> yes. unique name. Anyway, if you were minister in the Jeffocracy, aware that it's of a sort of benign dictatorship, or Jeff says yes. benign, uh, what would you? What's what's the sort of first thing you would do? Well, the very first thing you have to do is cancel the airport expansion plans. You know, it's not just Heathrow. There's airport expansion plans all over the country, and there is already enough capacity at UK airports for all of the demand that the Committee on Climate Change says is permissible if we want to actually meet our climate goals. So, you know, expanding Heathrow effectively implies that we plan to, you know, close the equivalent of Manchester later. Of course, you know, that's very unlikely to happen. And I think that mandating actually uh, private jets in the, in the face of a climate crisis, billionaires and celebrities carrying on flying around in private jets, it's a big problem it's not a big problem in, in the total size of emissions, but it's a big problem socially and culturally. Now, those planes can be electrified. No to Jeff Force One is what you're saying. Then, then I'll have no, something well, like the, electric. the Royal it's Yacht. Electric, yeah, it's or be, I'll have it's something like the Royal Yacht. You know the Tory MPs who wanted to give yeah. the Queen a new <laughs> Royal Yacht. In the Jeffocracy, maybe maybe I'll build one for myself. The Jeff Yacht. Yes. The Royal Train. Royal Train, Jeff. Yeah, yes, know. of course, yeah. Yeah. I can get much service these. So yeah, I'm very happy with any of these. Leo Murray, thank you so much for, for talking to us. No, thanks so much for having me on, guys. So, the HMS Jeff. Yeah, I, I would be happy sailing the seven seas on the HMS Jeff. So, what do you think of the idea, then? Well, I, I think it's a really good idea. It's, it's one of these, isn't it? Like, I've heard you and other people talk about how this climate crisis, it calls for a wartime-type yeah. effort. Yeah. And yet, nobody, when it comes down to an individual level, and people start thinking, oh, but... You know, I do like going on my mini breaks. I like going city breaks a few times yeah. a year. You know, pe people can be reluctant to give up themselves. But I think this is fair. I think, I mean, I was amazed by the numbers, amazed by how small a proportion business travel is, single digit um, yeah. percentage, uh, Leo was saying. And then that fewer than um, 48 percent of us to take yeah. a flight in any given year so i think if if you weren't taxing that first flight and if it's sort of like a break even on the current situation with the second wh why not i mean i've got also a variant on it which is i don't see why people shouldn't get a rebate if they don't fly either a rebate rebate or a rebate for public transport or something because people who fly are imposing environmental costs on those who don't and i don't see why they shouldn't 
get something out of choosing not to fly. Yeah, and then they could spend it on a flight. Well, no, or they could spend nice it on a holiday. Public, well, they could, well, it could be for public transport, for example. Yeah, yeah. There's also a variant on this, we should say, which is Leo's proposal, but I think it comes from Imperial College, which is recently, which, which recommended getting rid of frequent flyer cars, but also that you do it on the basis of miles. So people would have a sort of mile amount. So there's different tunes you can play on this. I certainly think the current flat rate tax which is however many times you fly you pay the same amount of tax doesn't seem to me to be make to make sense there must be a fairer way of doing it than this reasons to be cheerful a podcast about ideas with ed miliband and jeff lloyd planning for your next trip elevate your travel style with quince quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway like european linen premium luggage options buttery soft italian leather bags and so much more and it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. If you've got thoughts on what you've heard on the frequent flyer tax or indeed ideas for future episodes, future cheerful people, ideas for films about Jeff. A good vehicle for me. Apart from the plane. uh, Please do uh, get in touch with us. You can go find all of our contact details at our new Fandabidozi website, cheerfulpodcast.com. This one comes from Lily. Uh, Hyde and Jeff, first off, thanks so much for making this innovative, heartwarming and hilarious show. That's very nice of you, Lily. I've been a devoted listener for a while now, and the only problem is that I keep bursting into inappropriate laughter on public transport while listening. The worst days I attracted were when Jeff was describing the visit to his doctor and his comments that were made about a certain area of his body. Hard to clear that image from my mind. You and me both, Lily. It was about 100 episodes ago. I mean, uh, there have been developments, but I've, I've uh, chosen not to talk about indeed. them on recent podcasts. Yeah, you've told me all about them. Right. <laughs> uh, I'd like to suggest a topic for a future With show. Pictures. Tech computer science uh, <laughs> education in the uk i'm currently a mature student doing a bsc in computer science and i've noticed a significant gap in the secondary education experiences of coding and computing of students from other countries versus those from britain when i was at school i graduated less than a decade ago my school didn't even have programming as an option it was never suggested to me as something i would like to do despite being good at both maths and languages I also can't help but wonder if this was because I went to an all-girls school. Out of 150 people in my year, less than 30 of us were women. So we have a long way to go in terms of encouraging girls into programming. This is probably one of the most important skills and professions for the next generation. And we need to make sure these skills are spread across the population, be that by gender, age or race, to make sure everyone has equal access to these powerful tools. I'd be interested to know how the UK compares to other countries. I think it's a really interesting um, idea. And uh, Lily says, thanks again for being my reason to be cheerful every week. But do not take this as a license to talk about body parts. Damn. 
You know, I I don't know if I should be indulging you on this, but there have been tweets. This has rumbled on far longer than anything to do with my various body parts. Yeah, medical issues. All ledgers had story Uh, about make your own sandwiches. Stuart Hedges says you have to make your own sandwiches at the canteen where I work. It's terrible. The bread is dry because the last person left it open. The knife is buttery all over. I worry about non-pork eaters using the knife after I cut my sausages in half. Okay. And, yeah. and then, well, but it's, it's not all bad news, though. And then there's this one from uh, from Geraldine, yeah. who says, uh, I'm so behind the make-your-own-sandwich shop. Another Ed Miliband genius Aww. idea. Yeah, and look, it's not only that. Hot off the presses. This is one from Ed Owls. I'm a long-time listener, generally binge while driving my toddler to the in-laws, and I've recommended the show to many a friend and colleague. Anyway, following the High Street episode, I thought you might like to know about a great little cafe near to where I live in Walthamstow. It combines Ed's twin passions of social innovation and public self-catering called Eggs and Bread. Eggs and Bread are UK. You can make your own usually egg-based breakfast. What's more, you pay what you can afford. I think we've talked about this before. The idea being people without the means to pay for breakfast can make sure they're fed at the start of the day. Even though it's not sandwiches, I thought it might reassure Ed to the dream is alive and well. Keep up the good work. P.S. a bit weird, but a few years ago, me and my friend Dave, whose birthdays are both in October, had a joint Halloween party and dressed up as the spooky Milliband brothers. <laughs> I was Dave, he was Ed. Unfortunately, your contact form doesn't allow for photos. Um, the, these names, Ed Owls, Geraldine Collins, the, these don't sound like real people to me. They sound like bots. Have you employed... We You're saying about, I'm doing a Mitt Romney, Well, we learned you? all about this on last week's episode, people using well, nefarious Mitt, means. See, Mitt Romney's got this secret Twitter account that's just been revealed called Pierre Delecto. Asked to confirm by a journalist, Mr. Romney said, c'est moi. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, dear. So is Ed Owls secretly you? That's for me to know and you to find out. Send us your ideas or suggest a guest for a future episode. Email reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. Find us on Facebook or tweet at cheerfulpodcast. And for cheerful people this week, we are joined by Ken Loach, who, I mean, I'm, I'm guessing people are bandying around the phrase national treasure when your name comes up these days, I, I, are they? I don't Ken? think so. No, I, I, I take good care to be um, sufficiently abrasive to avoid that. <laughs> and um, Paul Lavater, who has, has written with Ken and written the screenplays for so many of those great films over the years. And, and here, here was our first, I guess, uh, quandary. Like this slot is called Cheerful People, and we thought, well, we we can have you on it because your your work makes the world a better place. It, it, <laughs> but I mean, it, it, it can often feel bleak when watching it. Do you consider yourself optimists? Absolutely, absolutely, because people always fight back, you know. And you show an intolerable situation, or you show a situation of exploitation, but people resist, and that's. Like we always know, wherever you go, you find talented people. You'll always find people who keep their community going, who who nourish you um, and nourish their community by their by their endeavours. You always find uh, solidarity. Um, you always find people who just say, "I'm bloody minded. I'm not going to follow what you need me to follow." And it's that spirit of resistance that are always reasons to be cheerful. I'm interested. So, so this film, you know, very broadly speaking, is about the world of zero hours contracts and the gig economy. Um, I'm sorry we missed you. It's called Sorry We Missed You. And and 
I'm interested to know, like, what is the point at which you start having conversations about what the film should be? Is there a point at which you notice these, for example, deliveries to your house are coming? How how are they managing this? How are they coming up with these one-hour time slots? And then do you work backwards from there? Where where does the idea come from to cover the issues that you cover? Well, I think when you're starting a film, so many things, you know, you're always looking for a story that's multi-layered. And lots of things feed into it. And you have to find something you really think is going to resonate. It's going to be worth your time. So did this, sorry to interrupt, yeah. did this come after uh, I, Daniel Blake? Yes, you'd it made, did. You'd made I, Daniel Blake. Yes, and it was very interesting because oftentimes you can't deal with everything in one film. And like Ken and myself, we went up and down the country. We spoke to so many people in food banks, you know, in Scotland all the way down to, you know, all, all, over, all over England. And then um, what really struck us was the stories of people who couldn't make it to the end of the month, people who were working, you know, the gig economy, zero-hour contracts, they're just turned, you know, their work is turned on and off like a tap. You know, it really made us think about, you know, work and children, you know, what effect that has. And, of course, what's really remarkable is now for so many families, you know, because so many are paying rent now because they, they missed, the, the, they're not on the, the, you know, the housing ladder, they need two people to work, you know, to make ends meet. And then, of course, that really, really interested us because they're saying, right, what's happening to families? What's happened to 11-year-old children? What's happened to youngsters? What's happened to teenagers? What happens in the fabric of the family, the most intimate space? You know, and they said, right, let's have a look at that. And two things we looked at. We looked at couriers, delivery, because it taps into the whole question of ecology, fossil fuels, technology. And one of the most important issues of the day is caring for our older people with the demographics changing so much. So with all of that, I suppose what we try and do is absorb it, then forget it, and then try and make a film. So so you have an issue like, like or have issues like these in mind. How how do you go about turning it into a story? Well, I mean, constant conversations, you know, we're mates from a long time ago, and, um, and, and you're kind of nourished by the conversation. But sometimes you don't really know what you're going to find. And you've got to do the journalistic work, the digging around. With this one, it was actually particularly difficult yeah, to speak to drivers because many of them are not in a trade union. So they've got no contact with an NGO. They're isolated. They're exhausted. They're knackered. And they're travelling all the time. So eventually, you know, the, what we did was we just went out to the depots, you know, before shifts and after shifts. We always tell people what we're doing, say we're going to tell a story. You know, would you mind if I asked you a few questions? You get to know them. Some people were remarkably brave and said, right, come out with us. I said, can, can I deliver the parcels with you? So you, you know, did that, did you? Yes, we did it. Mm-hmm. And it's really important, Ed, because, you know, all these statisticians, all these think tanks, they sit down and they do their figures. But what you've got to be is see the devil in the detail. When you see a man or a woman's eyes after a 12-hour shift, see how grey they are. You see the machine ticking and bleeping. You see um, the stress over 12 hours. You see them with the high-energy drinks. You see the children on their dashboards who they don't see. And, they, you know, a plane flies overhead and then it loses contact with the scanner. There's roadworks, there's gasworks or whatever. And then they've got to meet that preciser. The pressure is on again and again and again. And that's when we see... The real detail for those who haven't seen the oh, film. Oh, yes, oh, yes. Is the time that you have to deliver that parcel. Yes, time. time. Between yeah, one yeah, and two. Yeah. So that means, you know, the next, could be next door, but you've got to take a route to make sure it's delivered between 11 and 12 or a certain, a certain amount of time. So it suits the customer. Terrible for the environment, terrible for the driver, terrible for everyone else, very good for Jeff Bezos' balance, but actually misery for everyone else. And another very important thing that attracted Ken and myself mm-hmm. 
attention was this new language of the new contract. You know, you're not hired, you're on board. You're not an employer, (laughs) you're an owner-driver franchisee. Mm -hmm. And that is teams of lawyers, psychologists, propagandists who mould that, shape that. Mm. And then they try to convince people that, you know, they are entrepreneurs, warriors of the road. Mm -hmm. And just by one fell swoop, risk is transferred from the company to the driver. How varied did you find the experience of the drivers? I mean, I, I'm not in any way suggesting that sort of some drivers thought it was, you know, fantastic, but how how varied? No, it's a very good it? question, you know, and, and I think it's a very fair question as well, and, and we have to deal with it. And it was something we had to deal with in Daniel Blake too, because people accused us of saying, well, that's the worst case scenario. I mean, you, you wouldn't believe the stories. Mm-hmm. Daniel Blake was a guy who was articulate, he was competent, he had a job, he had good friends, you know, so he was like a, a robust man, and that's what the system did to him. So in this particular case, you know, sometimes you'd meet people who are, you know, flexibility for people who retire. They do a couple of hours, use their own car, and it suited them, and that's fine. You know, other people you'd meet, young, uh, fresh, if they got a plum route and they had no bad luck, didn't get an accident, fine. Very good again. They could make really, really good money. But then there's other people like Ricky, you know, where one thing goes wrong and they're knocked off. Can talk to us about the sort of, the dilemma you face in terms of the bleakness of the stories, if I'm, if I can ask about that. Um, I mean, in other words, t- talk us through your thought processes about. I don't want to put this the wrong way, but sort of yeah. how bleak to make it. Do you ever think? Do you ever catch yourself and think, you know, we need to give the order. <laughs> we need to, <laughs> we need to give them a break. No, yeah. no I, I think you just want to tell the truth. Really, I think that's the only, the only guiding principle has got to be you've got to do justice to the situation and and you, you have to um you have to tell the truth and some some things are tragedies you know and and it this has the tragedy of this is is that is ricky is trapped in that cabin they're in debt the only way out he has is to work the work is killing him but he has to work so so that sense of being trapped and and I think, I mean, in different stories, you different things that lighten it. You know, the, the, um, I mean, there's, there's always some, we always try and get some football in at some point. So the, 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 the crack between the, uh, yeah. the, the Man U fan and, yeah. and the Toon supporters. Yeah. You know, I mean, there's always something. Um, and, uh, the rate customers or whatever. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But, and, and some, I mean, a lot of films are not, are not as, are not as harsh, but it is, it is a very harsh reality. And you want to be unre- relatively unrelenting. Do you think it's important to be unrelenting to get them to get the gravity of the situation across? Well, well the thing is, just got to be true. You know, yeah. it's only the truth of the story. W- what what is the truth of this situation? And and the truth of the situation is embodied in the end of the end of the man trapped. I think for people who watched this film and who watched I, Daniel Blake and 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 many of your other films, I think they will be at the end of the film. Spoiler alert! I think they'll mm. be sort of feel, I suppose, deeply ashamed that this is the way the country is, but they'll also feel incredibly angry. It's a funny question for me to ask you, but what do you want them to do? Um, <clears throat> I, comrade. <laughs> I, I think we can't solve it without political change. Join a union, of course, join a union. As, as individuals, we're weak. In organisations, we're strong. Very difficult when you're in this these fragmented jobs, but trust political leaders or, or identify a political leadership that has that has the right analysis. You know that Tony Benn used to 
list on his fingers, didn't he? A secure job, a good wage, a home, education for your kids, pension when you're old, care when you're sick. That's very interesting now at this time. It's so hard to judge, isn't it? You know, when when you know when, when the zeitgeist changes. But maybe there's a great opportunity now if we can just be clear sighted and I think that's why those questions that you raised are now so important. The the film is Sorry We Missed You. Uh, you you must Go and see it. Uh, Ken Loach, Paul Leverty, thank you so much for talking to us. Thanks, it's a pleasure. Yeah, yeah, thanks a lot. Reasons to be cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Well, we're in the outro. Oh, we're in the outro. You you found it a bit exhausting this week's podcast. Yeah, we'll do a little little sleep. Um, We received this tweet from uh, Mike with regards to the outro. He says... We love the outro, don't we? We we do. He says, please, can I be included in the... My favourite bit. He says, because it's... it's, No, 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 no. It's difficult not to take these things personally. Uh, He says, please, can I be included in the outro as, like Emily Power, I also didn't design your artwork. (laughs) And this is at the the end. You know, we're so accustomed to saying Emily Power's name and you enjoy it so much. You don't really want to, you know... Stop it! So we've been given a, the credit for the previous artwork, but maybe this is a thing we could do every week, as well as Emily Power. We could, have somebody else. We can name. have a listener who didn't deserve, design the artwork. That's true. And this week, this it, is our form of our request, isn't it? Yeah. So it's like a little dedication yeah. of the podcast. Uh, and Good idea. This week we can have Mike Bertie as well as Emily Power. Yes. Okay. Uh, can I thank our guests, Leo Murray and Alice Larkin? And the uh, the legend that is Ken Loach with the incredibly talented Paul Leverty. We didn't film. get a biopic for you, did we? I don't know. We have I to g- confess. See, I don't think he's the type. We were to just say too it. embarrassed to ask. I don't think he's the type to say it there and then. I think I'm going to hear from him. You think so? Yeah. Maybe Paul will have thought thought. You know that guy. That guy has something. That guy. He's a parable of modern times. You know that, that series of Kirby enthusiasm where Mel Brooks sees Larry David singing karaoke and thinks that guy's got something, and then casts him in the producers. Is that true? Yeah, I think that's what's going to happen to me with with the next Ken Loach film. This is my prediction. I'm thinking. Don't call him. <laughs> he won't call you. Uh, so uh, anyway, thanks to Ken and Paul, and the film is sorry we missed you. It's terrific. Yeah, Emma Coulson produces our podcast with backup and research from Joel Pierce and Joe Kenyon. Gail Lofthouse is our announcer. James Deacon made the I Don't Said Seed, composed the music. Uh, the artwork wasn't made by Emily Power or Mike Bertie, but it was made by Henry Cole. He's been unrelated to ET. He's been a peripheral visionary. And these have been reasons to be cheerful. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. 
Let's get this dinner party started.